Ellie said he cut down the carbine, put a handle on it, taped the stock together, and glued an eyelet into it so a string or leather thong could be tied around it and it could be carried under the coat out of sight. He also told of doctoring the shotgun for similar purposes. He provided double-O buckshot for the shotgun he testified during four hours on the witness stand because they are the most effective shot at a short distance. For what? asked Assistant Attorney General Richard J. Israel. For killing, Kelly replied. Why did you seek protection? He was asked by Israel. Because of the possibility that if I testified, our lives would be in danger, Kelly answered. From whom? From this group, Kelly answered, nodding in the direction of Patriarcha and the other defendants. The legends of the American Mafia are woven into the fabric of American society and pop culture. We've all seen the movies or heard the stories of the men of this secret society. They're stories of family, power, wealth, respect, greed, betrayal, violence, murder, and mayhem. While the golden age of the mob may be over, the stories have become lore, and the names remain as infamous as ever. You're listening to the Members Only Podcast, hosted by history buff and mob aficionado Jacob Stoops. He tells the true crime biographies of real-life mobsters and dives deep into the plots, subplots, and real facts behind Cosa Nostra, as well as popular mob films and television shows. Viewer discretion is advised. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Members Only Podcast. I am your host, Jacob Stoops, and I'm a mob enthusiast and historian. Uh, in case you didn't notice, I've decided to change the moniker I use to describe myself at the beginning of each episode. Previously, I had labeled myself as a history buff, which I still definitely am, and a mob aficionado, which is where I'm really making a change. Uh, now, don't get me wrong, I still believe that I know way more than most about the mafia genre, uh, but I felt like a, a change to my to my moniker was warranted. But that being said, I'm really finding through my research that although, uh, again, I feel like I know a lot, I'm really barely scratching the surface on all there is to know. Uh, each time I've done an episode, I've discovered a great deal about my subjects and their stories that I really hadn't been aware of previously. So I'm finding that in addition to educating my audience through my episodes, I'm also continually educating and re-educating myself while creating content for folks to enjoy and even more importantly, scrutinize. So now I almost plan to consider each episode almost like a research project. And for this reason, I'm shifting my own moniker going forward from mob aficionado and mob enthusiast because I realize that I don't know nearly everything that there is to know uh, to historian because I'm doing a tremendous, tremendous amount of research to document the history of the mafia in order to separate fact from fiction uh, using the the closest possible information that I can that I can get from various sources, it's a small thing I know, uh, but it's important for me to clarify that I'm more of a fact gatherer, evolving into a storyteller, and this channel is essentially my place to document my research and share that information from things that I've learned, uh, whether I knew about them originally or not. 
And along that vein, today's episode is going to really fall into the category of something I wasn't expecting to focus on until I was working through the research for the Raymond Patriarca episode. While digging through some of the old newspaper articles, I came across a story that I really felt drawn to, and once I learned of this person's story, I felt pretty well compelled to, to share it, and I haven't seen it shared very often. And today we're really going to cover that story. Uh, we're going to explore how the man who once had a blossoming career as a professional baseball player became a vicious and respected mafia hitman. Now, before we get into the episode, I'd just like to remind you to please smash that subscribe button and turn on the bell to get notifications when I release a new episode. To all my new followers, welcome, and I look forward to interacting with you. To my existing followers, thank you for taking the time to watch and interact with my videos. I really appreciate it. Now, for those in the New England area, I'm sure this story is well known. However, for people who aren't as in tune with the goings on in the New England Mafia, maybe this story will be a new one. Uh, so without further ado, let's tell the story of a star ball player turned hitman. The year is 1968, Providence, Rhode Island. A local bookmaker named Rudolph Rudy Marfeo had recently defied the local czar of organized crime, Raymond L.S. Patriarca. This was not wise considering Patriarca allegedly had Rudy's brother Willie whacked very publicly just two years earlier. Patriarca wanted Marfeo straightened out as soon as possible. Whether Rudy Marfeo knew it or not, his days were numbered. If this fact was in the back of his mind or in the forefront is unknown, but on April 20th, 1968, he and his bodyguard, Anthony Melee, were observed shopping at Pinone's Market on 282 Pocasset Avenue in Providence. It was a pleasant, if not cool, spring afternoon in Providence. The locals milled about, and neighborhood kids played in the streets, barely noticing the maroon Buick sedan that had come to a crawl in front of Pinones. Suddenly, a wiry, well-built man with a Halloween mask over his face emerged from the back seat of the sedan, darting into the market with uncommon agility, a shotgun held in his large hands, and an armed and equally menacing accomplice trailing slightly behind. As store employees and customers ducked out of the way, the armed men went to work catching Marfeo and his bodyguard melee completely by surprise. Boom! In a scene reminiscent of The Godfather, the recalcitrant bookmaker Marfeo took a direct hit in the chest from almost point-blank range. He'd attempted to pull his gun out to defend himself, but the element of surprise and the athletic reflexes of the determined hitman snuffed his efforts out quickly as the man crashed to the floor. His unused pistol crashed harmlessly to the floor beside his outstretched hand. Before the first body hit the ground, the shooters were already taking aim at the bodyguard melee as he tried in vain to duck out of the back of the store. Boom! The hitmen had found their mark again, dropping melee near a shelf of canned tomatoes, his face mangled by buckshot, and his eyes transfixed in a glassy stare. The killing was over in seconds, and the executioners quickly slipped away in the Buick which had been waiting out front. 
As investigators examine the crime scene, neighborhood kids press their noses to the glass of the storefront in an effort to get a glimpse of the two corpses on the bloodstained floor. Meanwhile, in a hotel a few miles away, the killers, along with their co-conspirators, celebrated a job well done. The men shook hands, and the athletic shooter, who was aptly nicknamed Pro, reveled in a job well done, personally tallying his stats and boasting that he'd been first through the door, as well as how his shots had been the ones to drop both targets. Pro's accomplices, a man alleged to have been powerful, patriarch a crime family soldier and future boss Luigi Baby Shacks Menocchio, and local hood John Red Kelly, relayed the message that George, code for Patriarcha, was pleased. The pro in this story is a man named Maurice Pro Lerner, former professional baseball player turned vicious hitman for the Patriarcha crime family. Maurice Pro Lerner has both the distinction of having played eight seasons of professional baseball, reaching as high as double A, he's the owner of a 308 career batting average, as well as standing as a co-defendant with none other than Raymond L.S. Patriarca himself for his role as the shooter in the 1968 Marfeo melee murder case. And I'm sure you're asking yourself, how does one go from a burgeoning professional baseball career to doing hits for the mob? Well, this is the exact question we asked ourselves when studying information on Patriarcha. And since this channel is primarily about uncovering obscure mafia stories, we felt compelled to share the short and murderous tale of the rise and fall of Maurice Pro Lerner. Maurice Richard Lerner was born on December 20, 1935 in Cambridge, Massachusetts. His parents were Samuel and Doris Lerner. He spent most of what he later described as a happy childhood growing up in a duplex on 87 Verndale Street in Brookline, Massachusetts in the 1940s and early 1950s. According to sources, Maurice's father Samuel was a relatively small-time bookie in the area. His home was located two miles away from famous Fenway Park in Boston, which perhaps played a part in his love of baseball. Standing six feet two inches tall in high school, the lean and athletic Brookline prospect could always swing the bat well. He would bat 364 in his senior year of high school, attracting the attention of professional baseball scouts with his on-the-field prowess. From the caption beneath his high school yearbook picture, which read Baseball 234 and the famous nickname Pro, it was clear that he loved the game. There is some debate, however, on whether or not his nickname came from his standing as a baseball player or the fact that he'd been called Little Professor as a child due to possessing a keen intellect that was slightly ahead of other kids of his age. In 1953, when Lerner was just 18 years old, he signed his first professional baseball contract with the Washington Senators. Upon signing, he was sent in 1954 to the minors to play entry-level ball for the Erie Senators. This was no doubt a proud moment in his life, but after just 13 games and a miserable, miserable 167 batting average, Maurice left the team. And just to put it in perspective for uh, people that don't know baseball, uh, 300 
uh, is widely considered to be a very good batting average. So batting just 167, uh, that's pretty low. Anyways, he would spend the next two years in the United States Marine Corps, and after his time with the military concluded, he decided to return to baseball in 1957, joining the Milwaukee Braves franchise as a second baseman for their minor league affiliate, the Boise Braves out of Idaho. It's at this stop where he enjoyed his first taste of professional success, batting 328 with 158 hits in just 127 games. After his time with the Boise Braves, he was promoted and spent time in Yakima, Washington, where he hit 348. He then moved on to the Pittsburgh Pirates organization, where he hit 372 for the Wilson Tobbs in North Carolina. It's in the Pittsburgh organization where he had his first real shot to make the big leagues as the front office reportedly considered him as an up-and-coming middle infielder who had the potential to step in if one of their stars at the time, Bill Mazeroski or Dick Grote, got injured. But it's around this time when things took a turn and Lerner would begin to draw the ire of the organizations he was playing for through a series of very poor decisions and just generally bad behavior. During the 1959-1960 offseason, Lerner was playing winter ball down in Nicaragua. His batting was scolding hot. He was hitting close to 400 and having a great time. But his relationship with his manager and former big leaguer Earl Torgerson was both hot and cold. Torgerson had announced his intention to cut Lerner due to missed curfews as well as other transgressions. But before that could happen, Lerner and Torgerson got into it with some Cuban ballplayers after Lerner complained of receiving one too many brushback pitches. Uh, and just so you know, is a, a brushback, again, for those non-baseball fans, is basically when a pitcher throws it at or close to your head. <laughs> so that's not something you want as a batter. Torgerson got into a fist fight with a Cuban player after which he'd resign while Lerner attacked <laughs> attacked both a Cuban pitcher and umpire but somehow kept on playing and his bat stayed red hot. According to Lerner's winter ball teammate and future big leaguer Frank Castro, Lerner was the real deal. He would say I was hitting over 300 but I wasn't even close to the leading hitter who was Maury Lerner. Returning to the United States around the 1960 time frame after winter ball had concluded, Lerner was riding high. He'd won a batting title down in Nicaragua, and he'd built a reputation as a good, if not a little uptight, teammate despite his clashes with his former coach. Legend also has it that he took one last chance to cause a little mischief. According to the book Memories of Winter Ball by Lou Hernandez, Lerner actually smuggled a baby wildcat out of South America in a satchel after Winter Ball had concluded. Now that, <laughs> that's crazy. That's crazy. That's like Joey Gallo. Uh, maybe not quite Joey Gallo, but that's pretty crazy. In addition to his personal prowess, Lerner also stood out amongst his teammates for his love of reading as well as his approach to conditioning, which was ahead of his time. Uh, according to his one-time teammate and future Yankees shortstop and general manager, Gene Michael, Lerner focused heavily on his diet as well as weight training at a time where almost nobody in baseball was focused on strength conditioning. Additionally, Gene Michael remembered Lerner even 50 years after playing with him for his thoughts on baseball strategy, his approach to training which Michael as a younger player hadn't heard before, as well as how Lerner, who himself was a good fielder and line drive hitter, advocated for chopping down on the ball which caused higher bounces and allowed the batter additional time to beat out any throw to first base. According to Michael, he was way ahead of us. 
way ahead of us. It's clear that Lerner was both physically gifted, but also took a mental approach to the game that, had he played his cards right, may have put him in prime position to become a manager, scout, or to work in the front office after his playing days were over. Unfortunately for Lerner, that simply was not going to be in the cards. Though he had immense talent between the lines, he also had a nose for trouble. According to his family, he carried a very self-destructive fear of success. And when the opportunity he'd been building towards finally came after Pirates star Bill Mazeroski had gotten injured, Lerner ruined his chances of being called up to the big leagues by picking a fight with his manager. As explained by Lerner's son, Glenn, one of his biggest regrets, whenever he was going to get promoted, he would do something to undermine it. He didn't know how to explain it. As you get into the early 1960s, Lerner was in his mid-20s. By this point, he'd played with something like 15 different minor league teams. But sports is a young man's game, and when you begin to get up in age by minor league baseball standards, your prospects, despite still being relatively young, truly begin to dim. And this is where the lines begin to blur for Lerner in terms of his career prospects. He had to really make a decision on whether he wanted to continue to pursue his professional baseball career or whether he wanted to go in a different direction with his life. As you get into 1961, Lerner was playing for the Macon Peaches out in Georgia. While he was certainly a standout on that team, the team itself was filled with players on the back nine of their careers. According to his teammate, Tony Baratrome, the team was a bastard club, all on their way down. Unfortunately, that bleak statement included pro Lerner as well. Even still, Baratrome remembers Lerner as being very well-mannered. He was like a priest almost, though he would occasionally leave the team to attend to personal matters. In those days, even Major League professional baseball player salaries were far lower than they are today, which left many ball players, especially those toiling in the minors, looking for alternative sources of income. As it relates to Maurice Pro Lerner, it's true that personal matters may truly have just been personal matters, but more likely than not, he was looking for a means to supplement his income. As it turns out, around the same time frame, Lerner was also conducting a tryout for his new vocation as an armed robber and career criminal, one that he would slide into headfirst. In the summer of 1961, Lerner was arrested in Boston for robbing a furniture store and sentenced to three years probation. Then, a few months later, Lerner and an accomplice were arrested by Brookline police while in the midst of robbing an acquaintance. The pair were charged with conspiracy to commit armed robbery as well as carrying a firearm without a permit. When questioned by police, Lerner allegedly lied, which left the authorities with a fairly unfavorable impression of the professional ballplayer. According to his son Glenn, I know the Brookline police were not fond of him. A Jewish troublemaker would not be well looked on by an Irish police force. Even despite his dalliances into criminality, Lerner continued to pursue his professional baseball career and dream of one day making the bigs. By 1962, he'd bounced around again and was playing for the Raleigh Capitals, a minor league affiliate within the Washington Senators organization. That season, he hit 308 and even added a bit of power to his game, slamming a career-best 
eight home runs. So it's clear that despite his fading prospects, Pro Lerner could still hit. A teammate on that Raleigh team and future big leaguer John Kennedy, not the president, <laughs> years later would recall just how fixated Lerner was on honing his craft as a hitter. He couldn't care less about anything but hit, 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 Kennedy stated to a beat writer Dan Barry in a 2016 New York Times article featuring details from Lerner's life. There was also an empathetic side to Lerner. Kennedy remembered how one time Lerner convinced a homeless man who'd regularly hung outside of Devereaux Meadow Ballpark in Raleigh onto the team bus, hid him from the team's manager, and supplied him with enough beer to last the benefactor an entire day. According to Kennedy, when discussing this act of kindness, as far as I'm concerned, he was a hell of a guy. But at the same time, he was also caught passing bad checks in Tennessee, stealing television sets from hotels near Fenway Park, and hustling some Harvard University frat boys at pool. So still dipping into criminality. So clearly he'd started living his life with one foot in legitimate society while dipping his toe into the criminal lifestyle, and it was clear that he was beginning to see a future career path more with the latter than the former. Around 1962 or 1963, Lerner began hanging around a pair of very well-known criminal figures in the New England underworld, notorious armed robbers John Red Kelly and George William Billier Agisatelis. At the time, the duo were the prime suspects in a notorious Plymouth, Massachusetts robbery in which they allegedly disguised themselves as police officers, then commandeered a United States Postal Service mail truck making off with approximately $1.5 million in cold hard cash in the process. But Lerner wasn't quite ready to call it quits on his baseball career just yet. In 1963, he was still holding on to his last glimmers of hope while playing for the York White Roses, a senator's affiliate out of Pennsylvania. But a 250 batting average, far, far below his standards, that may have been average for, for most other players, but below his standards, across just 28 games, was perhaps the figurative nail in the coffin of his career as a professional baseball player. Though there was no formal announcement or press release from the team, it's clear that Lerner was on the outs. According to the New York Times, an internal FBI document from that time stated the following. Joseph McKenney, Director of Publicity, American Baseball League, and Joseph Cronin, President of the American League, after reviewing records, advise Maurice Lerner is presently on the suspended list of the York, Pennsylvania baseball team subject to moving up to a higher classification. Cronin stated that being on the suspended list indicates either Lerner did not report to the York team or was suspended while there for some infraction of the club's training regulations. So after 10 years of working his way through the minors, reaching as high as AA several times, pro Lerner unofficially hung up his spikes. His career stats, according to BaseballReference.com, were as follows. 511 hits, 85 doubles, 20 triples, 24 home runs, 226 RBIs, 60 stolen bases, and a career batting average of 308 while playing for a total of 21 different teams. So to say he bounced around was an understatement, but still he managed to put together solid, if not unspectacular numbers during his time in the minors, 308, very, very respectable, good batting average. So, clear, he was a good hitter. 
It's at this time where he dives headfirst into criminality, regularly begins showing up on police reports, and begins to hone his reputation as a criminal capable of making scores and also adept at violence as well, be it with a gun or a bat. He was known to put his skills as a ball player to good use while collecting money. In fact, as his reputation and penchant for violence grew, he was infamously said to have taken a swing at the head of a man who had the misfortune of answering the doorbell Lerner had rung when collecting. And this is where he got the attention of the Patriarcha crime family who began putting his talents as an enforcer to work on a regular basis. When people crossed the Patriarcha family, it was often Lerner and his friend Red Kelly who were sent to straighten things out. Sometimes this meant giving a beating, but more often than not, it meant to make people disappear. In January of 1965, a local hood named Robert Rasmussen was found in Wilmington, Massachusetts with a 38 caliber bullet in the back of his head. Informants would later claim that Rasmussen made the mistake of trying to extort money from Kelly, who then lured the man to Lerner's apartment on the promise of a major score where the two men killed him. He was found by police lying dead in a snowbank, nearly nude. In June of 1965, then 28-year-old Lerner was arrested as he sat in his friend Red Kelly's car on a fugitive for justice charge stemming back from his warrant in 1962 for charges in Tennessee of passing bad checks totaling $140. That's it. Uh, no one could explain the three-year delay in serving the warrant to Lerner, so a little bit odd, but it eventually caught up with him. It has also been alleged by mob informer Vincent Fat Vinnie Teresa that when the CIA and mob bosses like Patriarca, among others, wanted to assassinate Cuban dictator Fidel Castro, they allegedly handpicked Lerner for the job. Now, whether that's true or not, we may never know. But to have your name tied in with a major contract like that just goes to show what a rising star pro was at the time. In another case of pure viciousness, there was also the story of the murder of Tommy Richards, a member of Red Kelly's crew. Richards had vanished just before he was to go on trial for the 1962 mail heist in Plymouth. It is alleged that members of the Kelly crew and Kelly himself felt that Richards might not be able to hold up on the stand and may implicate Kelly and his associates. So Lerner was brought in to handle business, so to speak. According to statements later made by an associate to Kelly's lawyer at the time, F. Lee Bailey, Lerner shot Richards in the head as the man pleaded for his life, saying, I never did anything to hurt any of you guys. When Bailey asked his client Kelly about Tommy's whereabouts just before the trial, he recalled Kelly saying, well, Tommy won't be joining us. Circling back to the violent beginning of this episode, it was a brisk Providence evening in April 1968, and Lerner, along with another masked accomplice, had just left two marks, the renegade bookmaker Rudolph Rudy Marfeo, 42, and his bodyguard Anthony Melee, 26, lying dead in a pool of blood inside Pannone's market. Curious onlookers, as well as potential witnesses, were reluctant to furnish investigators with any information that might help them bring the perpetrators to justice. They knew this was a mob hit, and they also knew that if they kept their mouths shut and stuck to the unwritten code, no harm would come to them. I didn't see nothing, I didn't hear nothing, was the response given to reporters by the owner of a small store within close proximity of Pinones. 
Yet another onlooker suggested, you want information? Call 411 to an inquiring Providence Journal reporter. The authorities knew too that it was a mob rub out. They just couldn't prove it. Just after the murders, they stated to the press there's every indication it was a gangland killing. They also had a pretty good hunch that the order came down from none other than Raymond L.S. Patriarca, the Mafia Don of Providence, Rhode Island, and one of the most respected figures within organized crime in the entire country. As I covered at great length in my last episode, Patriarca controlled or granted access to much of the organized criminal activity in New England, and it was common knowledge that nothing got done in Providence without his express permission. Patriarca would often be seen sitting outside of his base of operations, the Coinomatic in Federal Hill, watching the FBI while they surveilled him in return. And in the case of the Marfeo melee hit, as with many others, months passed without any solid leads to tie in Patriarca, Lerner, or any of the other co-conspirators. But that was about to change. In the late 1960s, the Patriarca family was under siege as the FBI succeeded in turning several family-connected associates into informants. First, there was the infamous Joseph the Animal Barboza, who would tie Patriarca into murder conspiracy charges for a 1966 hit on Rudy Marfio's brother Willie, and then would again target crime family members in the murder of local hood Teddy Deegan. And then in 1969, the FBI succeeded in turning another criminal into an informant. Unfortunately for both Patriarca and Lerner, this time the rat was Maurice Lerner's close friend and supposed mentor, John Red Kelly. Kelly had recently been fingered for his part in a $524,000 Brinks armed robbery, and rather than face the music, he flipped and started giving information to the feds in exchange for leniency and a place in the witness protection program. Kelly immediately fingered his supposed friend Pro Lerner as the primary shooter in the Marfeo melee murders, as well as the other conspirators, including the boss himself, Ray Patriarca, along with his soldier, Luigi Baby Shacks Menocchio. He told a lurid story of how Patriarca's lieutenant, Menocchio, had specifically recruited Lerner due to his reputation for controlled violence and how, in turn, Lerner had brought Kelly on board for his meticulous attention to detail when it came to developing escape plans. Kelly further shared how they scouted the daily movements of their two unsuspecting victims, how they discovered that it was Marfeo's custom to shop for groceries in that market on Saturday afternoons, and how after the hit, the shooters met with Minocchio at a hotel a few miles away to congratulate them on a job well done. As a result of this information, FBI agents arrested Lerner at the Brookline, Massachusetts apartment he shared with his wife and children early one morning. The feds would find a pump-action shotgun as well as a fully loaded 45 caliber pistol. The FBI would also discover that Lerner had converted his basement into a shooting range where Lerner would practice his marksmanship. So it seems that Pro had put the same level of rigor into his training as a hitman as he did when he was still playing professional baseball. Except that it was no longer baseballs that he was hitting. Whether this viciousness was always inside of him or whether it manifested when he began his foray into the criminal lifestyle may never truly be known. But what's clear is that at some point Maurice Pro Lerner transformed from what most people around him considered to be a genuinely decent guy into a feared killer and deadly force within the New England underworld. 
According to investigators, Kelly had confided to them that Lerner was bright, courageous, and homicidal, and quite possibly the most dangerous man he had known in his 25 years of criminal activities. Another federal informant, one Richard Tchaikovsky, felt he could speak more freely after Lerner's arrest, saying that bastard Lerner got what he deserved. When asked to clarify, Tchaikovsky replied that Lerner was a sadistic killer and that he got his kicks from watching people bleed, and told of the time that Lerner had bragged about killing Billy Aggie Agasotelis with a 45 while he and Aggie held up a casual conversation in an automobile. Tchaikovsky would go on to say that he feels a lot better now that Lerner is off the streets because when Lerner was around, he was never really sure when Lerner might decide to plank him. Now, I'm not here to say whether what each of these informants said was truthful or not, but whether you believe it or not, it's clear that by this point, Lerner had the respect of the Patriarcha family, but was also gaining a nasty reputation for himself amongst some of his peers in the criminal underworld. In 1969, Maurice Pro Lerner, Raymond L.S. Patriarcha, Robert Fairbrothers, and John Rossi were arrested and charged with murder conspiracy. Patriarcha and another accomplice, made man Rudolf Schiara, were charged also with accessory to murder and conspiracy. Additionally, their other confederate, Luigi Baby Shacks Manocchio, would also be arrested and released on bail, after which he went on the lam and hid in France, Venezuela, possibly Aruba, and later New York City, and wouldn't surrender to police until 1979, after which he served 30 months in prison. The men would go on trial in 1970. As I'd referenced in the Patriarcha biography, this trial was riddled with theatrics likely perpetrated by the Patriarcha family in an effort to knock the trial off course, delay proceedings, and change the sentiments of the public and the jury. One of the defendants screamed at the prosecutor of the case, I'll get you, you bastard. I'll see tears running down your face before this is over, after which he punched a wooden door, breaking his hand in the process. In a more sordid tale, it is alleged that an unknown person or persons kidnapped one of the prosecution's key witnesses and shuttled them off to a secret location where this witness was asked to testify against everyone except Patriarcha and Lerner. As this particular witness left the stand, a relative of one of the defendants allegedly threatened her life. What became clear during the trial was that Lerner was the most likely one to be left holding the bag. As a small-time criminal and hitman, and a Jewish one at that, he was far more expendable than Patriarcha, the Italian crime boss. After deliberating for three days, a jury convicted Maurice Pro Lerner, along with Patriarcha, Fairbrothers, Rossi, and Schiara, of conspiracy to murder, while also convicting Lerner of first-degree murder. For the conspiracy charges, Patriarcha, Lerner, Fairbrothers, Rossi, and Schiara would be sentenced to 10 years. Unfortunately for Lerner, at just 34 years of age, the judge in this case also handed him two life sentences to be served consecutively. The jury was unable to reach a verdict for the other defendants. According to a Department of Justice memorandum, it was generally agreed that among the FBI Strike Force attorneys and Rhode Island Attorney General that the conviction of Patriarcha in this matter would deal a death blow to the Rhode Island LCN and the conviction of Maurice Pro Lerner will remove from the scene one of the most vicious and effective killers in New England. Patriarcha would later be exonerated in 1972 of charges due to holes in John Red Kelly's testimony. It was said that in his stay at a Boston prison during the trial, Lerner took comfort in visits made by a Boston rabbi 
but after the verdict, Lerner sent word to the rabbi that he could discontinue his visits. The hard-hitting slugger whose life had once held such promise had thrown it all away. To quote a Bronx tale, the saddest thing in life is wasted talent. After the trial, Lerner served his time in prison where he rubbed shoulders with the likes of Gerard the Frenchman Wimet, who was an influential associate of the Patriarcha family and who controlled much of the prison activity. It's said that behind bars, Lerner was a model inmate. For keeping his mouth shut during the trial and taking his punishment like a man, it's said that Lerner was afforded a fair degree of respect. But rather than embrace the prison culture, he kept to himself and stayed out of trouble. According to a New York Times article, Lerner was said to have the second highest IQ in the prison and still took fanatical pride in both his fitness and education. He conformed fully to all prison rules and by all accounts was a model inmate. Brian Andrews, a former detective commander of the Rhode Island State Police, described Lerner as follows. A disciplined guy, the coldest, hardest guy there, and pro wouldn't talk. Sometimes he'd look at you and wouldn't even answer you. In 1980, Lerner rescued a corrections officer who was being choked with a cord by another inmate, subduing the attacker and escorting the injured officer to the infirmary. For this, he received a formal commendation in his prison file applauding him for a heroic action. According to feared career criminal Gerard Tillingast, who served time with Lerner, take organized crime away or any kind of crimes like that. If you was to know him, you would never equate him to that. Never. When you get to know him, very charismatic if he likes you. Very seldom you'd get him laughing. Lerner would serve 18 years of his two life sentences. However, in 1988, he'd finally get a legal victory. It turns out that his former mentor, John Red Kelly, with the help of corrupt FBI agent Paul Rico, had perjured himself during the trial. So in addition to Patriarcha getting off, uh, Lerner was able to eventually get off as well. Red Kelly would later confess that he'd embellished certain parts of his testimony. According to Kelly, he'd told the truth regarding how the hit went down and Lerner's role as the primary shooter, but embellished some of the details, including how the shooters had met with Patriarcha to plan the double homicide, a meeting which never actually happened. As a result, the Rhode Island Supreme Court overturned Lerner's murder conviction. In the days before Christmas 1988, Maurice Pro Lerner pled no contest to murder and conspiracy and was given credit for time served, and at the age of 53, he walked away a free man. Moving to Las Vegas, Lerner lived out the rest of his life in peace, dying in September of 2013 at the age of 78. Okay, so that's it for this episode. It certainly was a bit of a different episode, but a really compelling story nonetheless that I really wanted to share with my channel. I'd like to give a shout out, of course, to Dan Barry's 2016 New York Times article, which I used as my primary research source. And then I, of course, supplemented it with supporting documentation and additional details that I could find. 
I'd encourage everyone, uh, and I'm gonna list it on my website, I'll list it in the link below uh, the video, but I'd encourage everyone to pop on over and read that article. It's really, really good, some, some uh, great story, great visuals, and again, it was my primary uh, source of uh, inspiration and material for this episode. Next episode, we'll be exploring an infamous story involving Joey Gallo and Neil Delacroche, after which we'll be covering some of the mob's lesser-known families around the country. Before you go, please don't forget to subscribe so that you can continue to enjoy my content as it's released, and if you have any thoughts, please leave them in the comments on YouTube or write us a review on Apple. Lastly, feel free to check out our website at www.membersonlypodcast.com or follow me on Facebook or Twitter. Until next time, grazie. Thank you for listening to the Members Only Podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, please hit like and subscribe to help the channel grow. You can also listen anywhere you get your podcasts. Until next time, don't forget to keep your mouth shut.